As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have an old friend, a dear colleague, and a fellow author from Sounds True, Lisa Wimberger, with me today. Welcome, Lisa. So good to talk to you again, Elena. Lisa's the author of Neurosculpting, which was one of the first books I ever read regarding using my brain to heal things like trauma, uh, limiting beliefs. I had really no clue before I read your book, and it was actually gifted to me by my editor, it sounds true, when we first started discussing the possibility of working together. And it was a big gift because it opened up the entire can of worms. In fact, on the cover, you have a, a blurb from Rick Hansen, who's now become another favorite brain scientist, teacher of mine. And he lauds you for blending brain science, spirituality, and a comprehensive action plan, which I think is one of the most important things that I could say about you. This is what you would do, my listener, if you need to clear anxiety if you need to lift your mood, if you feel like you're not quite enjoying your life every single day, this is our girl. So Lisa, um, again, welcome. And I'm really excited to, to have you here. And I have lots of questions. I always love our conversations and you are a powerhouse. So it's always exciting for me to talk with you. Thank you. So sweet. I want to start by just going over your sort of story. I know that it was born of your own trauma that you came to this work. You were struck by lightning on your birthday when you were 15, which is very auspicious. Mm -hmm. um, you began having blackouts that summer. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about those? Yeah. Um, so about, I guess it was shortly after I was hit, uh, started having fainting spells. Oh, well, at least I thought they were fainting spells because I would lose consciousness and then I would wake up quickly after. But oh, within a couple of years, I was not really waking up the way I should have. I was groggy. I was immobilized. Um, probably by the time I was 18, I would come out of these episodes and I would be, you know, in a puddle on the floor totally immobilized, can't move because I'm about to like lose my bowels or vomit all over the place or couldn't even really control my muscles. And these happened a lot when I was by myself. Generally, they'd happen around the time I was either menstruating or if I would get out of bed and you know go to the bathroom, they'd happen in the bathroom. Uh, so I hid them. My parents were, I told them I'm passing out. I don't know what you believe when a 15 year old tells you these things, but I never really got any kind of diagnosis. 
But by the time I was in my 20s, they were getting really profound and debilitating. And eventually I got a diagnosis when I was 30. After 15 years of having them, I um, had one very auspiciously in a doctor's exam, a routine exam. Actually, it was a gynecological exam, Whoa. Um, which was very freaky because as a woman, that's your most vulnerable. And um, wow. I thought I was going to faint. So I, I just said, okay, I'm going to faint. And what I woke up to was this doctor who was white as a ghost and shaking. And he had a needle of atropine in his hand. And he said, you flatlined. You had a grand mal seizure. We were going to resuscitate you. What, when has this happened before? And I can't speak at this point. I'm in a complete puddle. Like the whole bed is drenched. I think I urinated. I don't know. I can't speak. And I just looked at him and I managed to get out of my mouth. Well, this has been happening since I was 15. And he gave me my diagnosis after they sent me to the hospital and determined I was not epileptic. I had normal EKGs, normal EEGs. They told me I had extreme vasovagal syncope, meaning my vagus nerve was putting me into an extreme freeze response reaction to stress. And I was doing the play dead option so well that I was going into bradycardia, dropping my heart rate and eventually flatlining. And that was the beginning of the aha moments. Like, oh my God, this is stress? How could this be stress? I'm a meditator. My whole life I've been a meditator. The seizures got much worse. And the very last one I had, I just could not breathe again on my own. And I knew if I had been alone during that one, I probably wouldn't have come back. And at that point, I... I knew I had to do something about it. I dove into neuroscience uh, for self-preservation. I dove into learning about my brainstem and the vagus nerve and the freeze response and read the work of Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory and uh, Peter Levine and Waking the Tiger and all these somatic uh, approaches that actually saved my life. And... Um, gave me the insight that we don't understand our nervous system and we need to because it drives how we experience the world and then how we express in the world. And we've dissociated from that so much because we don't get a manual for it. We're taught in, in spiritual practices, we're more than this body. And of course, I believe that. But that then kind of gave me permission my whole life to ignore the body since I'm more than it. And I needed to stop thinking that and I needed to say, oh, I am in my body. How do I want to speak to it? How do I want to love it? How do I want it to support me? And I need to learn the language of my body. And so that was that was really the impetus for neurosculpting. And when you had a seizure in front of your three-year-old daughter in a food court. Mm. I read that as part of your story, and that one struck me. What on earth? How on earth? She's now 16. Yeah. How has that impacted things? It's sort of a tangent. I'm sorry, but I'm just curious to hear like the personal things. 
that was probably the worst day of my life for sure. So we're just sitting there having lunch. She's in a high chair and I bite into a chicken bone and have a seizure. Now, of course, I don't know I'm having a seizure. Oh my God. I'm actually in a seizure. I'm hallucinating. So I think I'm conscious. I think she and I are still interacting. It's not until the paramedics are over me mm. that I realize I've had a seizure. So I leave completely. So I My face smashes into my plate of food. I flip over backwards. I'm on the ground. This is what she sees. I wake up to paramedics. I don't know how long I was out. Obviously long enough for them to get there. So that's minutes. I open my eyes. I can't speak. I can't move. And all I could think of is, oh my God, where's where's my daughter? Where's my daughter? And now I'm in this space of, I don't know what reality is at this point. She runs over to me and puts her hand on my chest And she said, mommy, did you die? And now my whole world is like, oh my my God, God. I have a three-year-old. And that's never a question I ever expected to be asked. And now I'm starting to project the long-term, what do I do for her to reestablish her sense of safety in the world? Because there's none. She just watched mom exit. So for about two weeks after that, she was hyper vigilantly attached to me. I mean, if I blinked too long, she was like on me, mommy, are you okay? And so we had to start practicing 911 scripts and phone calls when she was three. Mm. I had to start teaching her, what do you do if this happens again? You just stay next to me. You do not go anywhere. You keep your hand on my body, like all this stuff that I never expected to deal with. And then I would say, Within a year, no, within about a year and a half, started noticing very typical classic OCD symptoms with her. And they were hardcore from the time she was five till probably she was 13, where she would go through these phases of first it started as chirping out of her throat, and we thought it might have been Tourette's, but it was uh, an OCD category symptom. And then those those would change. So as the years went by, the the chirping would then change to she'd have to tap things a certain amount of times. Mm-hmm. And then that would change to compulsive erasing and and oh. scribbling on paper. Like every oh, year baby. the symptoms changed. And you know, consciously she kept saying she was fine. So I would I meditated with her every single night for years. It was her bedtime routine. I would help her meditate on creating safety, giving her physical practices. And um, the tremor release, neurogenic tremor practice was really good for her. I taught her that. It's basically Dr. David Burselli's protocol for shaking the body. And she really liked that because she did not like going into her thoughts because they were too scary for her. So meditation could only be facilitated at a certain level for her. I couldn't bring her close to processing the trauma because it was still too fresh for her. So we had to do a lot of physical practices and I got her on things like fish oil, high doses of fish oil for her anxiety and her 
brain repair and she doesn't really have OCD symptoms anymore. They disappeared, I think, at least overtly, they disappeared when she was about 14. Right. She has incredible insight and awareness uh, into her her own space, Um, but I'm sure there's still work to do there. So that's a very significant... It's a very significant chapter in your daughter's life. I'm glad that that is now of the past, mm-hmm. thankfully. I would love to now pursue a little bit more the method of neurosculpting because it changed a lot for me back when I read your book. It's very dog-eared and underlined and, you know, I can't say enough about the help that it gave me fusing brain science Uh, meditation, really mindfulness, I think in your case, so that even, you know, sort of most challenging, limiting beliefs that I had, I now knew upon reading this book could totally be rewritten. I didn't realize what neuroplasticity really was until I read your book. Mm. And I I think it's one of the best out there, which is why I really wanted to talk to you. Um, The book itself is called Neurosculpting, if you're listening. And you created it out of necessity and even, as you say, out of love for your daughter and your husband because it's a way to go outside of all the other things that are out there and just take five steps so that you can release the grip of whatever it is that's gripping you. Um, The five steps, I actually took some notes for our talk, so I have them in front of me. Mm. And you call it self-directed neuroplasticity in order to support repatterning, which I really appreciate and feel. Step one, you're down-regulating your hyperactive stress activity Mm -hmm. and you're engaging with your parasympathetic nervous system response. So all that translates into you are, um, it's sort of like you're shifting a car. You're shifting out of drive and back towards neutral. Mm-hmm. Can you speak more about what step one means to you? Yeah. We all hope for change. We all want it at a conscious level, but the nervous system is not driven by conscious level thought. The nervous system is driven by the subconscious patterning it has created. So to want it at a conscious level doesn't really do a whole lot to get it. It's a great starting point. But you have to go in and speak the language of the nervous system to get it to move out of self-protection mode so that any change you hope to have has a foundation to stick into and integrate into. You cannot do that when the nervous system is in arousal contraction. Or you can't do that when the nervous system is in such deep freeze that you're dissociated. So in order to allow the conscious mind to drive the changes, we have to prime the nervous system to be listening in an expansive parasympathetic rest and digest sort of way. I like the idea of the nervous system listening. Yeah. When it's in hyperarousal, it's not listening, it's dictating. And when it's in deep freeze, it's not listening, it ran away from you. So we need to actually evoke a listening from the nervous system. And that means we have to go in and 
know where we are on the spectrum. Are we in deep freeze dissociation or are we in hyperarousal? And we teach people what these feel like. And from wherever we are, we meet ourselves where we're at. From wherever we are on that spectrum, we can use mental and physical practices to move ourselves along that spectrum until we hit this beautiful homeostasis in the moment that is rest and digest. And at that point, the nervous system gets to say, oh, I'm listening. So if you'd like to shift a pattern, I'm a little willing to do that right now. And if you'd like to orient me towards something better, I'm willing to do that as well. And so step one for me is always, always orient to whatever is going to get me into rest and digest. And typically that's safety, comfort, support, consistency. Those are the categories that will orient most people. Am I safe in this moment? Am I dry? Is my body temperature regulated? Do I have access to food and water? Is this cushion comfortable? Is my breath breathing consistently in and out? Do I have shelter from the elements? Mm. This is a very simple list, but this is step one for a mammalian nervous system. So it's it's universal. What kind of blows my mind right now, I have my hands in a few different projects that relate to children, trafficking, female genital mutilation, early childhood pregnancy, forced childhood marriage. These are things that I just want to put a highlighter pen on the fact that these steps that we're going through right now are complete luxuries for most of us. When you're in a survival situation, step one isn't quite an option. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. And so for those people, that's where the shaking comes in. That's where the physical practices come in. Um, And the beautiful thing about neurosculpting is we recognize there are two ways into the nervous system. One is top down, thoughts affect the nervous system. And one is bottom up through the body to then influence the thoughts. And we cannot ever assume that everyone can go in the same way. So for people who cannot orient to safety because perhaps they've never, ever known it, we go in through the body. They can shake. Shaking is profoundly regulatory or regulating for the nervous system. It will take a level of dissociation and scale it back to a bit of embodiment. It will take a level of hyperarousal and discharge the energy of that and bring that closer to homeostasis. So when we think of um, in the herbal world, there are adaptogen herbs that tend to know just what the body needs and will change their influence on the body based on your needs. Neurogenic tremoring is that to the body. It will take you no matter what your response and help move you in a direction towards more regulation. So like for instance, my daughter, she could not use her top-down process to get to homeostasis. Thoughts were too scary for her. So for her, we had to go bottom up in through the body. And perhaps for those girls in, in trafficking situations or mutilation situations, there really is 
a difficult time going top down. And so that's why we have to learn the language of the nervous system because there's more than one way into it. This neurogenic tremoring, first of all, I want to spell it for my listener, N-E-U-R-O-G-E-N-I-C, tremor, T-R-E-M-O-R. The doctor's name is David. Can you spell his last name? Berselli, B-E-R-C-E-L-L-I. Thank you. So that is work that I've actually been privy to once or twice, but I didn't know what it was called. And it is extremely helpful for certain types of trauma. Mm-hmm. So I'm really grateful that you mentioned it because I found benefit from it when I used it, when it was presented to me. We're leading into step two now where enhanced focused attention is now happening. Mm-hmm. So now we've got the nervous system listening, right? We've got it a little bit more compliant, a little bit more on our side. Now what we want to do is enhance the way the mind is able to focus because we want to optimize what we're going to feed into the nervous system. So we want to enhance focused attention. And the way we do that is we bring a lot of activity to the front of the brain. Step two is upregulating the prefrontal cortex. And for that, it's super simple. The front of the brain gets very aroused, i.e. focused, when it is stimulated with things like humor or benign novelty or wonder or awe. So for instance, you're driving on a long trip. It's very boring. And all of a sudden, there's a double rainbow in the sky. And your mind, your prefrontal cortex says, wow, that's so beautiful. And then you drive along and you get to where you're going. And someone says, how was your drive? And you say, oh, it was boring. But I saw this double rainbow. These moments of prefrontal triggering become stamped in memory because they harness focused attention. And that's what we want to do to the brain. Got it. Once it's in homeostasis, we want to manually trigger that level of focused attention and induce the brain so that whatever we're about to feed it becomes marked in our memory as valuable. So from the point of a of a a stimulated prefrontal cortex, we could actually feed it content of our intentional choosing that it will then lock onto much more strongly than if we did not trigger the prefrontal cortex in this way. Got it. So we're really optimizing. It's it's strategic optimizing. It's like turning off the news and turning on something much more nourishing, like mantras or classical music. Yes. Got it. And then it frames the rest of your time whether it's a short time or the rest of the day, it will frame it differently because you've induced your brain in a different way. That makes sense to me. Which then obviously segues perfectly into step three, which is where we increase the activity between the analytical and the intuitive self. Explain. We've got this brain induced in listening, right? We want to use this Consider it like the induced brain is a stage. Now, what do we want to put on that stage and what will we like to play out? Because whatever we put on there and whatever scene plays out will be valued 
by our brain as content to remember because we're induced. So on that stage, we can do a couple things. We can revisit an old pattern and file down the sharp edges of it and shift it just a little bit, shift our relationship to it, or we can create a brand new story and juice it up with details. But the the strategic aspect of this storytelling part is that we want to use more real estate of the brain in the telling because the brain will then again value this information more strongly, higher value. Real estate is value to the brain. Right. So if we recruit participation in the story from both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere in a rich way, the story we're telling becomes much more memorable. And this is how change happens. Change requires memory. Because if you can't remember the edit or the new at a very subconscious level, you can't reference it and reiterate it and grow it tomorrow. And change only happens over time sustainably in incremental doses. Right. Um, I should say manageable change happens that way. Sustainable change. Sustainable change happens that way. And in order to make that happen, every time you tell that story, you have to give it the highest value possible. Mm. So the brain remembers it better, longer, so you can retrieve it easier more frequently. Right. And so we optimize the storytelling part by very intentionally recruiting left and right hemisphere engagement. I call this a toggle across the midline of the brain. And as somatic people, I know a lot of your audience really has a deep relationship to the somatics and to yoga and body. If you think about the body, Anything you do with grace happens because you cross the midline. You counterbalance. For every step forward with your right foot, there is an equal and opposite counter on the left side of your body. This crossing of the midline is inherently necessary for grace, balance, poise, skill, and for learning. And it's the same in the brain. When we get to cross the midline intentionally, we optimize all of those things within the storytelling. And and it keeps us from looking at an old thing the same old way. It actually stimulates a very new perspective, which is also helpful. So step three does so many different things. Mm. Step three is profound for me. I got the chance to interview my kid one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, and we talked about the fact that right after his dad and I separated, I told my kid the story of a little girl named Elena and would sort of add detail and different aspects and facets to it every night. But I told the story for several, like probably a year and a half, two years, several months of how Elena went through her life and all the things that she liked and all the things that she did and all the way up to meeting his dad, all the way up to our deep and beautiful love and how that love gently turned into a friendship. Now, at the time, that wasn't actually the case, but it became so because I kept telling the story and seeing Jonah's delight in it every night at bedtime, it, it became true in a funny way. 
That's so beautiful. But it's exactly the step three I now realize. Yes. So yep. interesting. Anything you tell yourself long enough will become true. Right. And if you tell it to yourself in an induced way with a very strategic neuroplastic enhancement, mm. you'll believe it faster. We have a great coach, my uh, my doTERRA team. We have this coach called Deb Erickson, who's from, she has a company called the ICANN Institute. And all of her tools mm. are basically neuro tools. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what she teaches. That's amazing. I get it. Okay. Step four. Step four. You know, this one, this one has a lot of big words in it, girl. Yes, I know. All right. I'll make it, I'll break it down. Good. Um, step four is the opposite of you're not your body. Let's put it that way. Um, and here's, here's the importance of step four. The body is the container that all of this anchors into. It is the interface the spirit has chosen to react, respond, and interpret the world. Therefore, we have to make sure that interface is working in our favor. The body, according to Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score, and this is the truth. Everything you think and feel is stored somewhere as a cascading signal or result of body mechanics. You contract a muscle when you're scared. You soften a muscle when you're safe. Uh, when you feel love, your blood vessels dilate. I mean, everything has a body component. So every sense, every skin touch, every motion has the opportunity to associate with a perception. The song on the radio that you haven't heard since prom will give you a flashback. It really does, by the way. It does. The smell of the perfume or the cologne your first love wore will send you back and cause you to miss exits on the highway because you forgot you were driving. So the body has these portals into our psyche, and we use that in step four. At a moment where the mental story is so juicy and you're editing it and you're putting intention to this aspect you want to focus on, we want to mark it in the body. And we do that by either making some sort of hand gesture with the non-dominant hand, or you can hold a rock and feel it, or you can put your essential oil on your wrist and smell it at that moment. Anything you can do in the moment of a critically new and better perception should be marked in the body as a bookmark because you will create a link for that body motion to that thought, which meant, then means tomorrow, what do you think is going to happen when you smell your oil? Your subconscious is going to say, oh yeah, that better story. And it's going to reference it just a little bit, which means exercising it. Referencing it is exercise to the brain. So this is really called Hebb's Law of Neuroplasticity. Neurons that fire together, wire together. If something happens, totally unrelated, simultaneous to a very important perception or feeling, those two things will link because the brain is trying to make them efficient and the brain values synchronicity. Brain says if it's happening simultaneously, it's probably for a reason. I will automate that and link them more and more. Wow. 
So we can take advantage of that in step four. And you can link anything to a perception. We like to use our hands because they're with us all the time. You're welcome to use anything really in the environment, but that becomes a little risky if let's say you're constantly linking your sense of safety to the smell of lavender. What if you run out of your lavender oil? So that's why I say use the hands or the body first and add on all the other things you'd like to link. You're programming. This is just programming your mind to be triggered intentionally because your mind already did this. It already programmed you to be triggered unintentionally all the time. The mailman walks up and you start to go into contraction because you're like, he's going to be delivering bills. Ugh, that's a trigger. Mailman has nothing to do with your debt, but he becomes a trigger. Song on the radio, the sound of the siren. All of these things are unintentionally linked by Hebb's law. We're just putting intention to it in step four. I like the idea of the unintentional programs, triggers, every every other input, and then just turning it into something very, very intentional as an overarching theme for this you know, whole conversation. Absolutely. Acknowledging that so much of it is happening unintentionally and then coming through with some intention. Yeah. So that leads to step five, which is where we are now enabled to easily identify and replicate the process in a regular daily moment. Yeah. And step five is very similar to step four. We're going to bookmark it, but we're going to bookmark it with a word. A, a linguistic reference because the um, analytical side of us really likes to put labels to things. It likes to call us capital I. <laughs> it likes to call a chair, a C-H-A-I-R. It likes to believe it has authority over the world by naming things. So we let it do that. We invite that in at the end and we ask the meditator, choose a word or a phrase that could be meaningful to you or pure nonsense, but a word or phrase that best would remind you of this experience. And you're using the same principles as step four. You're linking a random word or phrase to a reference to the meditation. And then of course, if that word comes up in conversation, or if you then write that on a post-it note, that becomes a powerful affirmation. And this kind of brings me to my love-hate relationship with affirmations. And I'll, I just... I have, I have that also. I have this name. We choose arbitrary affirmations that we read in books, but we don't know that the content we've ascribed to that affirmation, the subconscious meaning of that may be totally counterproductive. So for instance, the affirmation of, I don't know, life is great, may not be plausible to the subconscious belief systems we have. And so every time we say it, the nervous system is calling BS on it. And that's the opposite of what that affirmation is supposed to do for you. But with neurosculpting, that word at the end, you are loading its meaning and its association. And when you do that, that's when the affirmation works for you. You have to preload what it means to your nervous system for it to then hack in. So affirmations absolutely do work 
if and only if they align with our subconscious meaning of that affirmation. Otherwise, they're counterproductive in my experience. So we just take some time to load in and ascribe a real deep meaning to the words we're going to use to try to bring us back to this state over and over again. Got it. And then you get to use your word throughout your day and have these little moments of subconscious reference to your meditation. Right. It's just so simple and so smart and so um, potent and also very pertinent right now. We're, we're, we're like adrift mm-hmm. with all this input all the time. It's so hard to determine what to pay attention to. Where should I put my focus right now? It is very difficult. Oh my God. Even for, you know, people who are surrounded by teachers and, and information that is peer to benefit, it's very hard to focus. So I really appreciate the, the, the work that you're doing. I'd love to hear about your vision for the future of, of your work. Like, where do you see this going? What, tell us more. You know, I've often just let it tell me where it needs to go. Hmm. A lot of times I, I've had an agenda and I realized that that agenda is coming from a conscious level, but my subconscious is doing all sorts of different things with it. So here's my hope. We've been moving this in the direction of the healthcare industry, and we've been working really hard to do that. So now our deep neurosculpting practical immersion, it's a 16 hour course, is CE qualified for healthcare providers? Because I deeply believe that if we could change the vibration of the Western healthcare industry, we might start seeing people as a whole functioning unit that has an intelligent design inherently built in that we can tap into. And maybe the face of disease treatment could change. So we've been working for the last couple of years to get that recognized in the medical industry and it's starting. And we've got some studies that are about to be published. And now this main course is available for psychiatrists and psychologists and nurses to get, you know, CEs for, which is fantastic. We have, we have a fair amount of uh, practitioners, nurses, therapists listening. I would love to just have you take a moment to spell out precisely what course is available to them. It is the um, Warrior One Neurosculpting course. It's on the website in our online learning store. And if you just even email me at lisa at neurosculptinginstitute.com, I'm happy to give you information on it and even dialogue with you about it to see if it's right for you. Very good. It's a 16-hour self-study and teaches the real foundational work around this five-step process. And so that's one direction. The other direction, you know, has been a mission of mine for the last 12 years. I work with law enforcement and I have some new police contracts this year where I go into police agencies and, and God, my vision is if there's a person whose finger is on the trigger of a loaded gun, they absolutely should know how to regulate their nervous system in the face of their biases and stories. And so that's been a huge crusade for me for since before it was even called neurosculpting. So that work continues. And then just getting this out there um, 
certifying people to go into their communities and teach this as a healing modality based on their experience, understanding their own nervous system and saying, oh my God, this has helped me. And now I want to pay it forward. So how that looks, I'm completely open to it, to the universe telling me what it's supposed to look like, but those are the directions that I would love for it to go. So let's get really practical. Typically, I asked each of my guests three questions, but I'm changing things up today because I want to ask you a much more important question. I've just had, let's say, for example, I've just had a fight with, um, I don't know, my boss or my lover or something that has really rattled my cage. Mm -hmm. Talk me through the steps, the neurosculpting steps, so that I can get out of my mindset, which is everything is crumbling. Everything is going to fall apart right now. I have nowhere to go. And, and instead of doing anything productive, I've started texting friends complaining about things or some such, mm-hmm. some, some unproductive activity. Yeah. Teach me what I would do if something, even something more traumatic happened. What, what do I do? Okay. First thing, and this might deviate a little bit from the five steps. First thing is I would shake 1000% first step. What does that mean exactly though? Cause somebody might not know. 10 seconds of vigorous shaking, head, arms, legs, almost like you're maybe even running in place, but even more vigorous. That's because the first thing I want to do is get the muscles to discharge their contraction because that will help the mind calm faster. If the muscles are allowed to stay contracted, I'm going to go into mind chatter and I'm not going to be able to stop texting my friends, right? So I hack in from bottom up first and I do 10, 15 seconds of shaking. Like when you got that cold chill that runs up your neck and you have that shiver and you go like that and your body twitches, that kind of shaking. Got it. So I do that first. Next thing I do is I pull out my safety, comfort, support checklist. And that is, all right, maybe life sucks right now but I am dry. I am in a building that is protecting me from the snow or the rain or the wind. I have my snacks in my drawer. Okay. I know where the bathroom is. I will literally in my mind go through a basic needs checklist because that is going to measurably chill out your fight flee midbrain response. Even if it's only one little notch you want to start the process of downregulation. So shaking first, reliability, consistency, safety, support checklist second, and literally this all takes like 30 seconds. And then from there, if you can invite yourself to notice one new bizarre aspect of your environment in the moment, or if you could bring to mind something ridiculous like, all right, life sucks, but what would it look like if my boss had a clown nose on right now? Or how ridiculous would it be if my lover who I was fighting with right now had um, you know, three arms? If you could bring to mind something so bizarre and novel, you'll pop yourself into your prefrontal cortex. Right. From there, that might be all you actually get to do. But that is a massive amount because now your nervous system is poised differently to deal with the in the moment 
experience. Later, what I would do is I would ask myself, what stories of mine came up? Was it my not enough story? Was it my I need to be validated by you story? And that's when I would go into a full meditation and go to step three and look at that story when I evoke it. Where does that live in my body? And can I shift my body's response to that story? And then can I mark that shift with step four and five with a hand gesture and a word? So I would actually break up the steps. I would do the steps shaking as a precursor and then steps one and two for in the moment. And then later do the full five steps for a debrief re-sculpting of the way I store today's experience. Got it. And the hand gestures and other things, where can I or my listener learn more about those practices? Yes. I mean, they can always just come to the Institute and take a bite-sized chunk class and we'll teach you how to use that. But in general, the hand gesture and the words kind of need to be loaded with meaning before they can be used in the moment. So I would associate a hand gesture a few times in a meditation for it to then be something I could use in the moment to bring me back to that state. So those are a little bit, they take a little preloading and a little repetition, but just after a few times, let's say you've loaded in a hand gesture to a point in your meditation where you're actually exhaling and softening. If you've done that a few times, then in the moment, that hand gesture might evoke that down regulation. So it takes a little preloading, but then it works in the moment as a daily use tool as well. Got it. So it's basically, there's no hand gesture to learn. It's something that you do that you make up for yourself that gets loaded with a meaning that takes you from point A to point B, point A being something incredibly negative and point B being, okay, I'm healing again. Yes, correct. Great. All right, good. Um, I want to thank you so much for the for the time today. And I also wanted to point out that you also have a kid's book, The Monster Story. Will you talk a little bit about that for the babies? I wrote it for my daughter after the episode in the food court because I went, oh my God, so that, that memory is now the monster under her bed and it's going to plague her. And then I thought about children everywhere and that's um, I was telling this kid's story in a class that I was teaching at Naropa in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it teach as part of their human growth and development course. And as I was telling this kid's story to illustrate the power of an experience to turn into a story that turns into something that haunts us, I used this kid's story to explain the dynamics between the hippocampus and the amygdala as characters in the library that gives you these stories. And, and the director stood up and said, oh my God, every kid needs to read that book. And I thought, huh, I'm telling the story because it was I developed it for my daughter. But yeah, I do think kids need to read this book. So I wrote it. And so The Monster Under Your Bed is Just a Story in Your Head is a book designed to teach neural literacy to children. And it's designed to teach it in a story way 
where the child is actually learning the five steps of neurosculpting within the story. And the caregiver or parent who's reading their child the story is also learning how to facilitate that with their child. And then it's got some tips at, at the back for helping the children get a little bit more intentionally neuroplastic. Mm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a book to teach critical neuroliteracy skills to children who, as you now know, with the work you're doing, are facing global catastrophic level experiences with no tools. None. And these are the kids that are going to lead us in the future. And we need to do our job now to give them the tools to create a world that's good for them. Otherwise, we're robbing them. We're robbing them right now. I would love, um, if I could, I'm working with an organization called Girls on Fire Leaders, and I would love to, I don't know, even pay you for a, a, an hour of your time to just give me a really nice step-by-step -step what I can teach them when I go to Kenya to see them um, mm. that would pertain to their experience because it's so different, obviously, than what you and I are experiencing right now in our beautiful homes and the United States of America is completely fucked up as all of this is. I, I would love to actually, I, I had uh, an African refugee program some years ago where we trained ambassadors in Colorado from all different countries of Africa who were here because they were, um, they had escaped sex trafficking. And so there is a, there's some tweaks that need to be made for those women. And I've already worked with them doing that, I would be thrilled to work with you on that. That'd be great. Cause the, we're working with girls ages six to 16, training the youngest to then become teachers as they get older. So the eldest are now teaching the youngest. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of, you know, teaching ourselves out of the equation. Mm -hmm. You're giving them back their power by removing yourself from the equation. Correct. Yeah. So what I would love to do, that's what I would love to do. I think I'll, what I'll do is just email you and then you and I can jump on a call. I'm happy to compensate you and and get something in writing that I can then teach and use to train the other girls. Sounds great. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I really, truly appreciate it. It's been many, many, many years of enjoying this book. The book is called Neurosculpting and it is one that does not leave my shelf. I'm so happy. The only time it left was when somebody stole it. Ah. <laughs> I had to buy it again and re-underline and reread again, of course. Wow. Thank you so much, Elena. And for all of the amazing work you are putting out to the world, we so need you. Mm -hmm. We so need all of what you're doing. And you're just changing lives of women in deep, deep need. And it's such a blessing. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Really nice to talk to you today. And thank you once again for everything you do. You too. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast.
My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.